This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. It's being called a betrayal, an extreme breach of Supreme Court protocol, a leaked draft opinion on perhaps the most polarizing issue the court confronts, abortion. Cato's Walter Olson discusses what draft opinions are, what we can learn from this one, and what changes for the court now that it is leaked. There is the substance, uh, and there is the court norm issue about leaks from the court. And I'm going to hold the substance at a distance. There'll be a lot to talk about on that and more to talk about when the decision is actually final, because all we've seen right now is an early draft. Uh, The whole community that follows the court uh, was astonished that uh, a whole draft of a majority opinion would leak out at this stage. That is not something that has happened. The court has certainly had leaks. The leaks have sometimes suggested where the court is coming out on a pending case. Uh, Much more often, leaks happen after cases are decided and we find out like who is arguing against whom. But this kind of leak is unprecedented as far as the importance of the case, the leak of an entire document of 90-some pages, and the uh, speculation that it, of course, has inevitably unleashed as to who might have leaked and why they might have leaked it. All right. So we should understand what a draft opinion is. It is uh, something that is passed between justices among clerks uh, in discussions to try to get to either a majority or get to some sort of agreement that a majority can live with, even if temporarily on some issue of importance. Especially on the most prominent case of the year, the most high-profile case potentially in years, a draft by the justice who expects to write the opinion is kind of an opening bid. And as with opening bids in a card game, it doesn't necessarily tell you where it's going to wind up. The What happened before this draft was the justices met in a preliminary meeting to see which side had the majority. At that point, they can proceed to assign the first draft to a judge on the majority side. When the chief justice is in the majority, he decides, in this case, he is not. And so the senior justice, Justice Thomas, picks which judge writes, in this case, picks his slightly junior colleague, Sam Alito. Now, The drafting of this sort of thing, I call it a kind of a negotiation draft. The justice who is charged with this is torn. I'm going to be a little bit speculative, but try not to go beyond what is publicly known about the attitudes of the justice. Torn between, on the one hand, trying to get as much of his own views in as he can, and on the other hand, knowing from that initial meeting of the justices uh, that those who he needs to keep on board, uh, both to get a majority and also for the various advantages of having potentially a united majority rather than a fractured one, uh, he knows what they have argued about what convinced them on the case, what arguments they found unconvincing, what they will put up with and what they will not put up with in the final draft. And so he already knows, to judge from the way the justices have discussed abortion in the past, that some of the justices in his majority would not go as far as he would on some issues and probably some questions of language. So you can see that, and and again, it's getting a little bit speculative, but you can see this as his first 
proposal for what he might, what he thinks that they might sign on to. But of course, part of this document at the upper right hand of the first page is a list of justices with unchecked boxes next to their name. It suggests to us that perhaps at the time this copy was taken, they hadn't even seen it. It certainly suggests that at the time the copy was taken, none of them had had a chance to react. And it is those reactions that would steer the opinion perhaps toward changes in its language, perhaps towards dropping or changing sections, or perhaps toward an impasse in which some of the majority might split off. Now, it's it's pretty rare that a majority opinion turns into a minority opinion because someone is literally convinced to, ch- to join the opposite side of the opinion. It does happen. It has certainly happened in the past in some interesting cases. On an issue like abortion, where they have all been under the spotlight for so long, and none of them have done anything other than give this issue very, very extensive thought already, pretty unlikely that one of them would actually cross. Not so unlikely, and much more common in past deliberations is a a splitting within the majority in which they reach the same outcome as far as upholding the statute it would be in, in this case, but they diverge on reasoning. And we have no idea from this initial draft whether by this point, months later, the majority has fractured while remaining a majority as to result, whether you know, almost, you know, what has happened with Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' vote? Well, he is rumored not to be in with the three liberals as a dissenter. Where is he exactly? Uh, you know, might he persuade one of the justices to join him in some middle position? So all of that we don't know. Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, the current minority leader, has urged swift justice uh, and seemingly uh, it Chief Justice Roberts has already said that the FBI has been consulted on uh, an investigation. What would criminal charges on this kind of breach, what would they even look like? I don't know. And people have been discussing, people who know much more than I do about the potentially applicable laws, have been talking about whether or not there is actual criminal exposure. What we do know before we resolve that is that the professional exposure is potentially enormous because by and large, it has been accepted by all of the justices and by the culture that is former uh, Supreme Court law clerks. And it is a tremendously influential culture. They you know, recognize each other across the room, it might seem. I mean, <laughs> not literally, but they. Th- this is a very powerful part of elite law is the culture created originally by Supreme Court justices and then passed on, especially through their clerks, who remember the rules and the expectations, of which there are very few that are closer to the tippy-top than don't leak, especially don't leak this way, especially don't leak this way about this kind of case. What changes? I mean, you you mentioned that the Supreme Court has had leaks before, none this extensive and certainly not a full draft opinion. But uh, what what changes? Well, it depends, of course, on what court decides to do. It it will almost certainly react in some way. When the result in Roe v. Wade, not the draft opinion, but the result came out uh, shortly before its public announcement, the uh, we know that a couple of justices demanded an investigation. There was actually a question of whether to put people under uh, polygraph tests, which as 
criminal justice reformers we know are, are pretty darn unreliable things. But there, there was talk of, of putting clerks under them, which I think was finally resisted by a couple of the justices and, and didn't happen. But we know that they, um, they get very upset about this. And again, this is something that is largely across ideological lines. We know, I say we know, but it, it can't confirm my, I strongly believe that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, uh, would have been uh, completely committed as an institutionalist to things are not to be done this way. And we must never let clerks forget that they must never do things this way. If, if it was a clerk, you, we can't be sure it was a clerk. But so the court could change its internal procedures. It could make clear its discontent in various ways. I'll bring up simply because several people have brought it up in the social media scuttlebutt, the question, will they accelerate the publication of this case in reaction to the leak of an early draft? And the argument, especially from conser some conservatives who were very upset at the their perception that someone was trying to torpedo the court's reaching of uh, the majority opinion that Alito envisaged. Some of them have suggested, oh, get the decision out right away and in order to show them, whoever them is, which may be one person or may stand in for, for some set of opponents, that they can't get away with this kind of leak. Well, I'm very dubious about that. I think that there are reasons why the Supreme Court tends to hold its most controversial and difficult and high-profile cases for the very end of a term. Uh, part of it is that all of the justices put more time into it than they do into a unanimous ERISA case. Uh, part of it is that they really want to make sure that the process of deliberation in which everyone has heard everyone else's very best argument formulated as well as they possibly can is given that time to do. And I think they feel that way because their experience is that putting a lot of deliberation into it helps to avoid some mistakes and ambiguities that they would be aware of later. The cynical view is, well, they hold it until the last week because they want to drop the opinions out of a helicopter as they all fly off to you know, their Italian summer or whatever. The, um, that is a cynical view that may, have, like many cynical views, have something to it. But I genuinely believe that the sincere view is that they think that their most important cases will be decided more correctly if they give it those months to percolate. I think that um, that's closer to the truth. And so I think that to act in irritation, you know, someone thought that they could bring pressure to bear and we'll show them, we'll put out the opinion uh, a month or two earlier. I don't think that's how they think. I don't think that they would act with that logic in mind. As much as you and I might prefer to avoid a discussion of the legal issues here, uh, but, you know, let alone the moral issues that are uh, implicated in terms of rights and um, and who has what rights. What is your read, your final read on what's in this opinion? Let me confine myself to just one sub-issue because I've looked at it a lot and because a lot of the early speculation of, of the draft has reacted to this point, and that is the question of what does this mean for non-abortion precedents, such as uh, Lawrence v. Texas on 
uh, gay rights, uh, Obergefell, um, Griswold versus Connecticut on birth control, and some others. It has been argued for a long time by uh, many on the liberal side, look, you take away the abortion precedents and these other things uh, will be next or, the, or logically will be undercut. We know that several members of the court have asked during oral argument and, and signaled in other contexts that they do not want to endanger some or any, depending on the justice, of these other precedents. At the same time, we know from what Alito and also Justice Clarence Thomas have written that they wouldn't mind at all endangering some of the other precedents. They are the two justices that have signaled that they have not made their peace with some of the gay rights decisions, for example. So what does this draft tell us about that? Well, if you look at the draft, you find that it has a couple of passages which are in considerable tension with each other, as we say in the law biz, when we're trying to say they don't flatly contradict each other. There's a passage referring to the old Glucksburg decision, which is the one on assisted suicide, in which the court kind of came down uh, uh, for the view that to be recognized without having good um, uh, textual support for it as a constitutional right, it ought to be a highly traditional kind of liberty, like you know the right to raise one's own children or various others that are not enumerated in the text, but which have a long been thought of as very much part of the, the rights of you know, the constitutional republic. And then you've got another passage in which Alito says explicitly, uh, nothing in here should be seen as having to do with precedence for anything outside abortion. Um, now, those two don't quite add up with each other. But if you see the process through the idea of drafts, and in particular as an early draft that is kind of for negotiation to see who can be gotten to sign on to what, you might interpret those as Alito simultaneously putting in the way he wished uh, the final opinion would come out with the Glucksburg language, indicating that they were really going to crack down on a lot of non-enumerated rights. And you can see him putting in the other side to recognize what other justice positions certainly probably were during that initial discussion, which is uh, we know from justices past signaling that some of them probably very flatly said, not going to sign on anything that endorses ripping out other rights. It, you know, not, not going to sign on to that. So don't put it in there. So, so that passage in there reflects uh, where some other justices have signaled they're going to be. And so Alito, again, I'm speculating as to what might have gone through his mind, uh, said, okay, well, let's leave in both language and we will see who agrees to what as the process goes on. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.